Hello, and welcome to episode 48 of the Cognicast. I'm your host, Craig Andera. A few things I want to mention here at the top of the show. Uh, first of all, Closure West tickets are now on sale. You can find information about that at closurewest.org. We certainly hope to see you there. Um, or even before the uh, conference, as there will be training in the days leading up to the conference. Uh, we'll be having Intro to Closure, Intro to Closure script, and Datomic training all available. So you can check the website for that as well. So go on over and pick up tickets. Uh, again, that's closurewest.org. Um, I think that's all I have for you right now. So we'll go ahead and close there and go on to the show. Thanks for listening. Charms of earth, farewell your springs of joy are dry. My soul now seeks another home, a brighter world on high. I'm a long time traveling here below, I'm a long time traveling away from I'm a long time traveling here below to Okay, um, I think everything is good to go. Are you ready? Yeah, let's start. Awesome. All right, welcome everyone. Today is Friday, January 10th, 2014, and our guest today is Kyle Kingsbury. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm really excited to have you on. Um, I don't, I, I'm not sure whether you ever listened to the show, but we always start with a song that people have been hearing as we have uh, been coming in here, and we let the guest pick the song. So what what are we listening to? Oh, uh, we're listening to Longtime Traveler by the Wayland Jennies. All right, awesome. That sounds great. Um, or I, I, I assume it will sound great since I am not familiar with that song, but it's always fun for me to hear hear uh, the music that guests pick and uh, that'll be that'll be cool so um so yeah i'm so excited to have you on um i have been uh sort of aware of your work for quite a while um and saw you speak uh at strangely with my which was sort of my first i don't know in-person encounter with you although i was just in the audience um and you have since done other things that i've become aware of and i just think there's any number of of things that we could talk about you're doing a lot of interesting work so i thought it'd be, it would be cool to talk to you um, and I don't know. I mean, in terms of where to start, maybe we'll we'll go kind of reverse chronologically and start with um, what I have seen from you most recently, uh, namely your uh, tutorial introduction. I don't know how you describe it. Series on on closure that you've been doing. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Sure thing. Um, so I learned to to write closure from the uh, the terrific uh, programming closure book, um, and then there's there's a really I think our community does a really good job of writing uh, accessible, sort of pragmatic, open um, introductory materials. But there's always room for different approaches, and I tend to bounce around between different books that I'm learning. So I wanted to write something which would complement those books in a slightly different order, slightly different set of um, analogies, maybe. So Closure from the Ground Up is, is a book that I've been writing, uh, which will hopefully be full length. It's up to about uh, 22,000 words now. Um, and it's going to try and introduce people who might be new to programming entirely to uh, a slightly different sequence. So instead of looking at functions as recipes or instructions, we're looking at them as let bindings, which are deferred. 
Um, instead of looking at state as this sort of sequential thing, we start off right from the bat with concurrency. Yeah, and the series has been great. I mean, uh, I I guess just having been following the posts, have you you say twenty two thousand words? Is that twenty two thousand words written or twenty two thousand posted? Uh, that's that's posted. I've been doing the the posts um, hopefully once a week. <laughs> the goal is to get it done before uh, a presentation at Philly ETE in April, but I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, but hopefully it'll be done and actually in like proper typeset book form this summer. Cool. Do you have a do you have a publisher? I was thinking about LeanPub. Um, but actually, my my employer Factual uh, decided that they liked the work, and they were thinking about starting their own sort of imprint of technical books. Hmm. Cool. Um, so yeah, sorry. So the the, the I want to come back to what you said because there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. Starting with um, you know you're writing this book and targeting it at people that um, may not even know how to program, and it is I, to some people um, an interesting choice to start with. A lisp. Uh, you know, I I have um, two girls, and I have been teaching the older one to program a little bit. Um, she's only mm-hmm. nine, so we haven't really dove in yet. But we've started it, and I I think a lot about you know. I mean, obviously she's a beginner, right? So I think a lot about what are good languages to start with um, for kids or other or other beginners. And and do you think there's something especially appropriate, or are there unique challenges around closure as a first language? Yeah, so this is, it's definitely an interesting choice, right? And interesting could mean like, wow, you're a terrible person for doing this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, well, you know, subtext. Um, closure, b- because most introductory programming books are written from this perspective of uh, imperative styles, um, a lot of people learn to program these sort of assumptions, which are then difficult to sort of unlearn when you get to do certain types of programming. Specifically, I think the concurrency uh, and parallelism are sort of key concepts. And if everybody's learning to program in JavaScript, they never have to think about those things in the way that you would if you wrote in a really threaded language. Uh, and so all these assumptions about state and sequence and ordering, um, both in your program and in external systems like databases, sort of ties back into Jepson, um, might benefit from looking at things in a slightly different way. Uh, the other thing that's nice about Clojure is that it makes a lot of the concepts that I want to discuss explicit. So you can you can point to something in the language and say yes that is an expression, uh, instead of saying well this this nebulous string of characters is an expression like there's a clear logical difference between those different levels of interpretation. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So um, when you just well, let's let's how did you decide to write a book? I mean, what was you know you just sitting there one day? I think that'd be fun, and then off you went, or was there more Pretty more much. to the story? Okay, all right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so. Uh, yeah, maybe maybe this is a good time to talk about this. I've had this ulterior motive, um, which is that the closure community um, is composed almost entirely of people who look a lot like myself. Uh, you know, it's a whole bunch of young white males in this group, and that troubles me. Uh, I think that one of the problems with functional programming and ex- sort of experimental languages in general is that even though people tend to be very friendly, um, at least in the closure sub community, maybe not maybe not in the scholar. Do some ribbing here. No, they're nice <laughs> no comment. Uh, no comment. <laughs> well, yeah. So, so there's there's also the stereotype of the angry functional programmer, right? But the folks that I've asked for help have been remarkably welcoming. Um, I don't think it's necessarily a problem with with exclusivity. It might just be the sort of initial learning curve, and that maybe if we have better introductory resources, we can give people uh, a gentler welcome to the community. Uh, you know, maybe maybe less of a you know vertical brick wall when it comes to programming. 
Yeah, no, I um, think, go ahead, please, yeah. So, so we've, we've been working in Closure on this thing called Closure Bridge, which is going to be uh, a, a special set of workshops held around the country to welcome uh, women to Closure. Um, and I wanted to have resources which would be useful sort of background teaching tools, things that my, my friends or people I'm mentoring could refer to. And then when I heard about Closure Bridge, I thought, hey, this sort of fits in naturally. Uh, you know, this could be another resource along with Closure for the Brave and True and all the books like the Joy of Closure Programming uh, sort of fit into that, that educational path. Yeah, yeah, and at Cognitech, we are um, heavily involved in uh, Closure Bridge. We've got a few people that are uh, volunteering their time, and uh, we're lending some organizational assistance. And so, yeah, we're definitely in, in interested in that, and we will we'll be talking on the podcast more about Closure Bridge. You can be assured in the coming months, especially as it as it gets off the ground and begins to um, to hold uh, sessions. So it's it's something we are we are interested in both because it's a, a noble effort, but also I think because of exactly what you said, which is that. Um, you know, the community will benefit from broadening its its outreach. You just, you, if you access more people, you necessarily access more, you know, people that'll be worth working with and knowing. So that's that's we're super interested in that too. Um, so that's awesome. So um, so uh, I guess let's come back a little bit because the the other thing that uh, you mentioned briefly and the thing that I kind of first came to to hear of you from was. Uh, was as you mentioned, Jepson, um, uh, which maybe maybe I'll let you describe what Jepson is. Uh, Jepson is a, a Canadian pop star. Uh, right, right, right. Yeah, uh, she's, she's famous for the song called uh, "Call Me Maybe," uh, where she talks about the sort of perils of communication uh, and and how difficult it is to you know really make contact with other with other servers on the internet. Right, that's what that song is about. Okay, that that, <laughs> that video is really misleading. Then, um, no. So that so let's talk about maybe the slightly less known Jepson, which would be a, a piece of uh, or a, a set of articles, a, a suite of software that you've written. Yeah. So this is this is an effort. Um, you know, just like the song says, right? Like uh, like here's my number. Call me maybe. You know, when when servers communicate over IP networks or any sort of asynchronous network. They can lose messages. They can um, get their messages out of order. Uh, it's difficult to tell whether the other person even knows you're alive, and and that leads to algorithms which have to be sort of subtle and a little bit more complicated than you'd expect in order to do things correctly in this sort of unsequenced, un um, untemporally bounded world. You know, if you have timing guarantees, if you have a reliable failure detector, you can do a lot of things easily. Say, oh, that node actually crashed. But if you don't have a reliable failure detector, which is true for asynchronous networks, you have to say, well, I haven't heard anything for a while, but he might actually be going on on, on his own, you know, lifestyle. Or, uh, or you know, like that node over there, she's like definitely, uh, you know, on top of her game, uh, and I just can't talk to her. Um, so there's this there's this whole case where your your nodes have to be worried that the um, I personify these things that the that the other computers that they're working with are are active participants and living independent lives uh, and coming to their own conclusions, and that reaching consensus between those different units is the sort of continual conversation where the participants are dropping in and out or missing missing each other's uh, messages. Right. So so this is this is the the classic sort of distributed system stuff and and Jepson what is an effort if 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 I'm recapitulating this correctly. Right, right. What is it actually doing? <laughs> so, right. so I basically said, um, you know, this is an interesting set of problems, network partitions in general. What what happens when you lose communication? And I've tried to 
write uh, articles focusing on specific case studies or specific examples of systems which have failed in interesting ways to preserve their guarantees under under these communication failures. So in two nodes um, in you know, MongoDB are isolated from one another. What actually happens? What does the algorithm do in practice? So I go and measure that, and I write about it. Yeah, the series is really fascinating, um, not least because you found that, um, you know, uh, problems that are uh, perhaps surprising if, um, you know, you just kind of walked up and said, oh, you know, that seems like it would work based on my, my and speaking for me personally, limited understanding of these products, uh, th things came up. I mean, you found tons of issues with, with various um, uh, products that you looked at. Yeah, pretty much every system I've looked at, I found some interesting thing to report to the vendors. Um, but it's it's not really, I mean, people have looked at, at Jepson and said, like, hey, you shouldn't use Mongo or you shouldn't use Redis because of this particular article. And it's like, well, those bugs are now patched, right? Uh, what, you, what you should be concerned about is whether your system provides the guarantees you think it does. So Jepson has meant more to be as a, as a sort of, you know, here's a case study of a certain type of algorithm in a way it didn't work well. Maybe you could look for the same pattern in your own code, and and here's how you would actually go about measuring it. Yeah, I wonder if you could give us an example of one of the more, because um, I don't know if everybody's seen the the series. I highly recommend it if you haven't. Um, but I wonder if you could give us an example of one of the more interesting um, scenarios you were able to create. Hmm, which one's the most interesting? Well, one of them. Um, so so MongoDB's design uh, actually has multiple levels of sort of safety. And the default levels in most of the clients, even even the new stronger defaults, um, only replicate your message to one or two of the uh, of the sort of replica set, the group which is going to come to consensus on your value. But if you've got a five node replica set and you only replicate to two of them, it's possible that two independent you know sort of subsets of that of that group could come to different you know, agreements about the value. And then when they come back together, they have to throw away some data. Uh, there's a stronger version, which is where you write to a majority, and then you're forced because there's only, if you have two majorities in a set, right, they always have to overlap in at least one node. So you're guaranteed to see the past majorities agreed on values. So if you use uh, reconcern majority, if they do their leader election properly and always choose the one with the highest off log, um, and op-logs are monotonic, then there are certain invariants that are provided and, and it's supposed to be safe. And indeed, I think it probably is. Uh, but there was an error where network requests, which are made with this majority safety level, um, would be, they, they sit in memory while the server's waiting for consensus, basically. And if the server loses its network connections, it, it'll cut off the... Uh, the request at that point and say, well, I'm just going to check off the OK box and send it back to you. And it did include a message saying, um, you only replicated to two out of the five nodes. So it wasn't it wasn't complete. But the OK, your message is successful box was also checked off. And most clients just looked at that and said, eh, we succeeded. Mm. Um, so that's that's a bug that Jepson discovered uh, in MongoDB. And they were able to fix that one really fast. So it's been patched basically since the post came out. Yeah, that's that's super cool. I mean, one of the things that I w was when you I saw your presentation at Strangely, that was my kind of best overview of, of all the work. Um, uh, was I was like, well, how do you how do you actually go about 
creating these partitions? Like, what's the what's the mechanism? What's the setup that Jepson? I haven't looked at the code or anything. What it's is, actually really easy. Okay. Yeah, you just you just uh, IP tables dash j drop um, from the other host. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, uh, I actually I run these all on a laptop um, in in LXC, uh, but Comcast was actually really nice and gave me a, a grant um, which I've used to buy hardware. So uh, the next iteration of Jepson, I'll have this 48-core box, which I can use to do much larger simulations. Whoa. <laughs> awesome. Can I have it when you're done to play games on? <laughs> mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm basically I'm going around trolling the crisis forums, uh, complaining that my frame rate's too low, and then showing them screenshots of the 48-cores thrashing. <laughs> you, are, you are a bit... Uh, would, you, would you say it's fair to describe yourself as a bit of a provocateur? Do you, like, uh, you, know, do you <laughs> enjoy the reactions that you get from statements like that sometimes? I don't know. Um, my my overriding concern in all the stuff that I do in open source is to is to do something which is useful and good, uh, you know, for other people. So, you know, like writing the book is not something that I, like, I don't I don't get home and say like I want to spend eight hours working. <laughs> right? Like, right. This is something I do because I feel it's necessary. Um, but I also enjoy you know making snarky jokes. So there's there's a bit of a provocateur aspect to it. Awesome. Um, well, I, I for one enjoy them, sir. Um, yeah, so, so, you know, um, at Cognitech, we, we have a little database of our own, um, called Datomic, uh, and I'm actually I, looking forward to testing it in the oh, next iteration. Oh, great. Actually, that's what I was going to ask you is if you had any plans and I, and I was wondering whether there were any, um, unique challenges there given that Datomic can use, you know, a variety of storage engines to mm -hmm. actually keep the data in. Yeah, so uh, it's it's not clear to me which which one of them I should test. I was thinking that Riak and uh, and Zookeeper that's that's the hybrid, right, um, for for the React backend. Mm -hmm, that's right. Uh, so that would be an interesting one because it shows how using a consensus system you can layer strong consensus on top of a weaker database. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that even if that one you know succeeds, it doesn't show any errors. That it would be a really interesting uh, thing to talk about. Yeah, actually, um, that that it, sorry, go ahead, please. Oh no, go on. No, I was just going to say that that exact question has has come up recently, where there's been a bunch of discussion around um, in various places on the internet around, well, how could you possibly have a strongly consistent uh, system sitting on top of one that isn't? Mm -hmm. So yeah, it it really comes down to, um, I mean, formally speaking, linearization points, right? If you have if you have a single atomic point inside of your algorithm, and you can show that the logical consequences of the entire algorithm depend on the linearization point only. You know, in this case, the linearization point is Zookeeper, and, and whatever you do outside of it, if you're very clever about it, could be, could be more relaxed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, one of the things that I've been working on recently has been this, this uh, linearizability checker called Nosos, and that might allow me to discover linearizable failures in a database which is a little stronger, like Datomic. Yes, I saw this. This is super interesting, and to be perfectly honest, a bit over my head. Um, could you could you maybe describe linearizability to me? Because you spent some time in the post that introduces <laughs> Nasos describing it, and I didn't either. Either I got it and then forgot it, or didn't quite get it. So, what what exactly is linearizability? So this is actually, it was super confusing to me, and writing the post was the only way I could teach myself. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I've read, I've read a bunch of papers on linearizability before, and it never really clicked. So the property is simple. It's what you get out of a normal thread safety structure. So if you're going to make a call like, um, add this element to a queue, and your queue is thread safe, like in the JVM or something, uh, it will guarantee that 
your element is visible to other threads after the after the put completes. But it doesn't tell you exactly when the put is going to occur relative to other threads. So the invariant that linearizability provides is that uh, for every operation, it starts at a certain time and it completes at a certain time later. And it appears to take effect at a distinct point in time somewhere between those two, the invocation and the completion. Gotcha. That actually makes total sense to me. So if I can try to rephrase this, it's more or less things will go in some non-overlapping order. Uh, it's actually slightly stronger than that. Okay. Because, um, and, and this is also what was, what was tricky for me, is because there's a, as a supposedly, well, people think of it as stronger definition called serializability, but it's actually weaker in some ways. So databases like Postgres offer a serializable isolation level. And that says basically that everything appears to happen in some well-defined sequential order. Uh, it's like, well, you could reorder all the transactions in some way, and you could find a history where they happened sequentially instead of concurrently. Um, but it actually doesn't put any constraints on time. So a serializable database is actually allowed to say, um, if you do like a, a read-only transaction, like, hey, read the value of this register or read the value of this table, it's allowed to give you the value from like two weeks ago. Uh, that's, that's like a legal serialization. Uh, so what most people actually want is strict serializability, which is basically linearizability, but over the entire database. And what I want to find out is whether Datomic supports plain old serializability or strict serializability. Right, and of course the, the claim is that it's strict serializability because of the strong notion of time and the, the single single point of writing. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. You, sh you should be able to do it that way. Um, but you know, now I'm equipped with a slightly better uh, set of tools, and so I could actually verify that. Before, Jepson couldn't tell the difference between um, serializability, where anything could be reordered arbitrarily, and sort of you know bounded time serializability. Okay, interesting. I'm really, really looking forward to um, seeing your results. That'd be that's going to be super fun for us to see. And I'm I I would be I do, I'm not on the Datomic team, but I'd be pretty surprised if they weren't also looking forward to that because. Uh, I know that um, uh, several people on the team, including Rich, have said, "Look, look, I'll just you know tell you like when when I the reason I went to your talk at Strange Loop is Rich said you have to see this one. This work is really really cool. So uh, so kudos there. Um, That's really high praise. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, you know, I'm, he's he's uh, he's done a lot of interesting work, and of course when I, anyway. Um, enough of that. But <laughs> but um, the. Yeah, I actually want to just like make this the Rich Hickey fanboy hour. Yeah, I know, I know. I'm trying to avoid that. I <laughs> He's mean, so dreamy. I know. His hair is full of secrets. Yeah. And currency. <laughs> oh yeah, Rich Hickey hair jokes. That's that's my new show. I'm gonna start another show that's just about Rich Hickey's hair jokes. Um, I'm not trying to get you fired. <laughs> mm, that's okay. I it would it would be worthy if I made a really good joke. I would I would go. I would just it would be justified. Um, no, actually, the tradition of Newton. I mean, let's let's be honest. Though. Say again. Jury's for scientist is a real thing. Well, if you've seen me ever, you know that I have uh -huh. the opposite of Rich's hair, which is to say none. So uh, you know, I'm a little jealous. But um, uh, so actually, I wanted to ask you a question too um, about uh, you know choices in personal style. You presented at Strange Loop wearing a suit. I think you were the only one. What was the was there was there a reason behind that decision? Uh, mostly because it's fun weirding people out as they try and guess which company I'm a VP or like marketing person from. <laughs> right. Uh, that actually reminds. So you work. You said you work for Factual. I don't actually know that much about Factual. What uh, What do they do? Make, promote, whatever. Uh, Factual makes a. 
<laughs> this is probably not on, on point with the marketing, but we're building a database of all the things in the world, which is as authoritative as we can make it. So we want to have uh, the original dream was like a structured commons for data where you could you know, submit information that is high quality and that is normalized, and we would we would sort all this stuff together and come up with canonical representations of things like um, we know that this is a tube of toothpaste, and here are the places that it's sold, and here are the prices for it. We know that this plant is of this genus and of this species, and here it's, here's its range in the in the planet. Um, so things like uh, species and types of beer and types of food and, and locations. But what we found actually was most marketable. Uh, was the location data. So now we're more and more about high quality information about places, um, knowing who's present at a place, what things are nearby, what events have happened there. That is a very, to me, that sounds like a, an almost unreachable goal. I mean, the, I mean, it's, it's cool. And, and obviously <laughs> you guys are doing it, but, you know, essentially it's, you know, let's know where everything is. And that's just the constraint set that you're talking about in terms of markability. The, the bigger one was let's know everything. Yeah. Everything. Uh, you know, Hadoop, like that, it's just sprinkle some machine learning on it, you'll be fine, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's actually, it's one of those problems that I thought was um, not possible when I heard about it, and I discovered that it's just a lot of work, and, uh, you know, nobody's, nobody's perfect, there's no, like, magic inside of it, it's just a lot of people working very hard on, on you know, data quality. Hmm. Interesting. So, what's your role there? Uh, I serve a, a number of roles. Um, Mostly I work as a sort of distributed systems, maybe analyst or, or optimizer. Uh, I, my, my job is to sort of keep all of the moving parts happy in a certain corner of the system. So I do instrumentation, I do profiling, benchmarking, uh, reliability, uh, capacity planning, that sort of thing. Okay. And you're, I mean, you're writing a closure book. Uh, you know, obviously you're, uh, you like closure at least enough to want other people to learn it. Do you get to use it in your job? Yeah, yeah, that's one of the big draws for me was uh, that the core engineering team at Factual all writes enclosure. Cool. Um, is Factual hiring? <laughs> yes, yes, we are. Um, it's it's been a difficult uh, road actually to find to find engineers who want to you know work in this weird language uh, on these weird sort of big data problems. I guess actually we're, we're medium data like petabyte scale. So yeah, just only petabyte. Um, well, like you, I mean, Google's big data, right? And that's like another order or two of magnitude above us. So fair enough. Or sorry, uh, yeah, order of six maybe. Right. Um, so the, you, you made an interesting comment, which is that I've heard other people say as well. And I, I, it, it, it's that you said it has been a challenge to find people who want to work um, in closure. And that's interesting to me because um, I hear that. But I also hear people say, oh, man, I'd love to do closure, but my company mm -hmm. won't let me. And I feel like there's enough of that, that yes. if there was some way to get those two groups of people connected, that the problem would be at least somewhat solved. I wonder if you have any perspective on that. One of the things that frustrates me, and this is, this is slightly tangential, is that, uh, again, the makeup of the conferences, the meetups, and of the people who apply to work at Factual tends to be overwhelmingly sort of um, white men. Uh, and we have our share of gays, like me, but uh, it, it's it's been really tricky to build a diverse team when you're working in, in a sort of maybe more esoteric functional language. And this is why I think things like RailsBridge and uh, and having better learning materials and, and then focusing on making sure that we're really respectful people 
is, is most important. Um, so you know the the hiring the hiring pipeline is is biased because of the community bias. I mean, not not like an emotional bias, but just be, you know, like that the relative uh, you know proportions of people's identities are, are different than you'd like. Mm-hmm. Um, more generally, you know, we we tend to see a really interesting mix of of academic people who haven't actually written lists before, but but have uh, you know expressed interest in the idea of functional programming or, or machine learning, and then they then they learn it on the job, and that's worked out really well. Uh, the the other thing that's worked well for us has been posts on um, job specific or on uh, on like functional jobs uh, boards or foreclosure specific boards. Um, less success with with sort of going to, around to local meetups and asking people one on one, but maybe that's because I'm just not a very good salesperson. Yeah, it, that's that's interesting. So, um, what are some? I mean, I want to help people, right? I want to help uh, people be able to do closure if they want to. When you say closure specific boards, I mean, I've got a closure job. Like, I'm really lucky that way. You have the closure job. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, contact, right? It, well, you know, I, we certainly occupy a, a an important place, but I I always try to be very careful to not think of it as the most important or the only place, just because I've personally fallen into the trap several times before of being at a place that occupies an eminent position and seeing what that attitude can do. I think actually Cognitech is relatively good at not doing that, but I want to make sure we stay that way because honestly, it's a less interesting world where there's one place that is, you know, the the only place for X um, and then everywhere else is kind of secondary than where there's a lot of good stuff going on and everybody can help each other. One of the things I really like about working closure is that we have so many sort of esoteric or, 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 or errant, uh, you know, but preeminent people in the community. Like like Bodil, right? Uh, yes. She shows up with these projects out of the blue, which are like astonishing every time. Her talks are so great. And, uh, and, and yet, you know, she's not like working at you know, you haven't been the type safe. You haven't absorbed all of the all of the engineers yet for the for the core team. Um, we've got folks like uh, like David Nolan, right, who's doing amazing stuff with Ohm and with um, with uh, sort of ClojureScript in the browser mm-hmm. using persistent data structures. And that's that's driven by. I mean, he's affiliated with the New York Times, right? Like nobody would have expect, expected a news organization to be driving you know language adoption in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. I love that. I love that. Whenever. Somebody you've you've never heard of does something super interesting. Um, that's just so much fun and such. To me, it just speaks to exactly what I was saying before, which is that you can't, you don't want to, and you can't assume that all of the all of the great thinking or doing is happening in one place. And nor would you want it to. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a huge like. <laughs> Rich Hickey's design sensibilities is what brought me to the language, right? Mm-hmm. I, you know, the, the person, um, I mean, he's, he's clearly got a very uh, refined command of the, the pragmatic necessities around language design. You want to have things which are named a consistent way and, and which have um, certain type of namespacing that, that clicks really well with my head. Uh, I, the organizing principles worked well. And that, that brought me in initially, but I actually ended up staying for the libraries. <laughs> right? It was it was things by you know Chaz Emmerich. It was it was uh, by uh, by Kevin Lenant, um and by by David Nolan that really kept me sort of excited about closure. Yeah, there's some really cool stuff, and uh, right, I, I totally agree, totally agree. Um, yeah, wow. 
Well, what else are you working on, man? I mean, you are uh, clearly a super busy person, and uh, you've got. We've mentioned the book. We've mentioned um, uh, Jepson. Uh, you also mentioned Gnosis. Nasos, mm-hmm. I think it's. Uh, I actually don't know how to pronounce it. I don't, I don't know Greek, but uh, yeah, it, it's named out after a set of ruins on an island where um, the language Linear B was discovered. And since I'm looking if things be linear, it seems like a history pun. That is a huge naming win right there. I have to say, <laughs> kudos to you on that one. Um, uh, yeah, go, go on. No, I was just going to ask you to speak a little bit more to it because uh, it, it, like I said, I read the post and it was super interesting. We mentioned a little bit about linearizability, but what, what was the, I wonder if you could tell people a bit more about um, how you were able to uh, do the work in, in that library. Uh, one of the things that I've, I've really enjoyed about working in Clojure is that it lends itself really well to micro-languages, like, like every Lisp, right? Um, so Riemann, which is this monitoring system that has a sort of closure um, language for describing streams and sort of tree, tree data structures, right? Access fractions of trees. Uh, and then I wrote a simulation system, which looked similar to Riemann, but was built for simulating networks, where you wanted to ask, like, what's the latency of this distributed system? You know, if I've, if I've got, like, load balancers and proxies and, and single-threaded and concurrent servers and queues, how do they all, like, work together? Uh, what does what the aggregate latency profile look like? And that got me to thinking about simulating um, linearizability. And so Gnosis is this sort of like, hey, what would happen if you took a modeling language like TLA, uh, which is about specifying the behavior of a distributed algorithm, and you were to express it in, instead of in a propositional logic, if you wrote it as closure data structures and closure transformations, and a lot of stuff sort of falls out for free. Like you could do many world simulations because all the data structures are persistent in shared sort of structure. Um, you can fork the state of the world at any point into two sort of speculative executions. And that turns out to be really useful for Gnosis, which has to simulate, you know, sort of parallel worlds in which different sequences of events happen. Right, right. <laughs> Sorry, my head just exploded a little bit there. Uh, recover from the smoke. Um, yeah, that's super cool. And I, so when you implemented, I'm trying to remember the post, you, so this is, is this essentially is a search problem, right? Yeah, uh, so there, there's two things that happened in, in Nosa's library. One of them is a sort of example, which is this little model of a, of a Redis replication algorithm that was, that was proposed on the mailing list. Um, but that's, that's just there to be like, a, hey, here's how you actually model something. The Nosa's core itself is about taking a history of events which are observed from a system, so either generated by a model where you're where you're exploring the model search space, or maybe recorded from a real database. Like I could go and hit Datomic with a bunch of requests and write down when all of them happened. Um, so I take this history of invocations and completions. Like I mentioned, linearizability is about finding the specific times when those things took effect, such that it is consistent with some model. So I say. Uh, maybe my model is a queue or a set or a map or a register. I've got some like single-threaded data structure that I want to check and make sure that the concurrent history is equivalent to some linearized execution. And that becomes a search problem. I, I say, uh, for every operation I look at in the history, I say, well, maybe this happened or maybe it didn't. And let's proceed on both assumptions in parallel. So I fork the state of the world and I go forward with both. And then if I get a new fact, like this operation completed, I can get rid of every world in which the operation didn't happen and keep only the ones where it did. Right. So whenever I hear search and speculative and all possibilities, um, 
you know, my mind goes to CoreLogic. Are you using CoreLogic? And if not, did you consider it? I, I talked about this with David Nolan, and uh, I, th I think CoreLogic would have been a really good fit for this problem in terms of expressing it. But because it's an n-factorial search space, and because CoreLogic doesn't necessarily have... I, I feel like you have to know the optimizer inside of CoreLogic in order to really write efficient code with it. And that's something I don't know very well. <laughs> so I thought, hey, I know a specific algorithm and my choice of, of expiration order really matters. I mean, I, I cut like an n factorial times n squared problem into basically an, a constant, well, like an O-line algorithm, mm -hmm. um, depending on concurrency. Uh, that pruning is something I wasn't confident the core logic would be smart enough to do. Right, yeah, no, that makes total sense. I mean, I think that was... I think that's one of the one of the kind of the planned. Um, we'll have to have David on the show sometime to talk about. But I think that's one of the planned enhancements is to be able to uh, assist CoreLogic in how to explore the search space. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, also, I, I want to take advantage of some mutable data structures internally for speed. So um, it it was it was also it was a problem which lent itself well to me writing up the algorithm directly. Um, but Doing that was actually really complicated and required a lot of thought, and it would have been much easier for me as a programmer if I used CoreLogic. So <laughs> definitely one of those things I'm looking forward to working with. Yeah, me too. Uh, I haven't had a chance to really use it in anger yet. Um, oh, that's super cool, man. You've got so much going on. I mean, what else? I mean, is there other other things that you are excited about right now that uh, that we haven't we haven't covered yet? Or I've uh, been doing a lot of speaking stuff. Um, people people want to know about Jepson. Uh, so the next iteration of Jepson is going to start sometime probably in February. Uh, and I'll be making a lot of, you know, angry tweets about that. Uh, <laughs> back on it. <laughs> uh, and that should be presented at um, Philly ETE, uh, Emerging Technology for the Enterprise, in like April or May or something. Okay. Um, yeah, that, that should be fun. I'll get to hang out with uh, uh, Jamie and some of the other uh, folks from TypeSafe. Uh, you know, get get some Scala uh, action going on. Cool. Should be fun. Yeah. Are you going to make it out to Closure West? The dates were just announced, and the CFP just went out. <laughs> Put you <laughs> on really the spot. Um, I'm not. I'm not going to speak. I. I after this year, I've made a rule like I can't accept this many things because I'm, I'm maintaining a bunch of open source projects and giving the talks. You know, each talk takes like two to three hundred hours of work, right? So it's like a multi-month endeavor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm trying to just say no uh, as, as politely and often as I can. Yeah, no, I, I totally hear you. I mean, uh, talks do take a boatload of work, especially in these modern times where they get recorded and put on the internet and then you can't give the same talk for, you know, like a year and a half um, over and over again. So it's it's tough. I actually found the opposite. People saw it online and they asked me to come to their companies and give it, uh, <laughs> which was really fun, but... Um, Oh, good for you. Uh, yeah, no. yeah, I'm a terrible speaker, so it takes me a lot of time to practice and, and reorder. Uh, well, I, I would never know that you're a terrible speaker from having seen you. I quite enjoyed your presentation. I thought it was was very good, very well organized, very uh, very informative, um, very entertaining. So I, I really liked it. It's getting better, but, but thank you. Okay. Um, wow, man, you got a lot going on. Um, well, I want to come back to the to the book a little bit. Um, so. So far, you've kind of taken. So I was really interesting to to me to to read the first few um, installments because you 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 really seem to have made an effort, and you can tell me whether this was 
you know, me doing incorrect deconstruction or something you tried to do, like you really started out with, okay, here are the basics and like really, really the basics, but, but very rapidly, uh, uh, ramping up in a way that kind of remind me a bit of, um, structure and interpretation of computer programming where, <laughs> and I, that's, I mean, that is high praise and, uh-huh. you know, like, like you don't actually need to do a whole bunch of the stuff that often gets done in programming books between mm-hmm. chapter one and chapter 17. And, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you successfully went from, okay, here are the basic concepts to let's get into some, some more meaty stuff. Was that, was that trajectory something that you intentionally took? The trajectory was actually really constrained by everything that I tried to talk about or realized I needed something earlier. And so I, I just, it's supposed to be a ground up approach. It's like what happens if, if you're a learner whose style is to know things, to know the formalism as opposed to knowing sort of all the examples, closure from the ground up will work really well for you. Um, but it's, it's, it's definitely optimized for that particular sort of person who thinks a lot about syntax, about structure, and maybe less about the sort, and doesn't do this intuitively. Um, so there's a couple of people I'm actually running specifically for like my, my sort of model audience who, who definitely have this, this bent. Um, and I have no idea if it's going to work for other folks, but as, as a result of that orientation closure from the ground up focuses on structure above all else, which is why it immediately launches into macros in like chapter three or four. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's necessary because everything you're going to use in the language is going to be a macro. So you need to understand that concept early. Uh, even though it's something which is ordinarily left until very late in the game, because you know you're not supposed to look under the covers. Um, right. And I'm definitely, I, you know, I have this plane of cleavage. Like I'm not, I'm not going below the Java interop uh, layer, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do try and remind people that uh, if you wanted to build this all yourself, here's exactly how it works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's. I mean, I think it's, I think it's great, and I, I love the fact that you're taking an approach that is, that is somewhat different from. Um, you know, some of the other resources out there, because I think you're right, like there are times when I, there are times for me personally, at least that, that I want to learn things, you know, as you say, by example, and other times where I'm like, no, give me a mental model to show me how to, how to fit this all into my brain in such a way that I can kind of step back and go, that's the picture. I understand how this new piece attaches to it. Mm-hmm. One of the things that was missing for me um, when I, when I learned closure myself, I had a lot of confusion over uh, best like best practices for things like namespaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a lot of confusion over what exactly like a, a reference was. Like what is a symbol really? What is an expression really? And mm-hmm. and ha- what do macros even mean? Like there, there were examples and I could follow them, but I didn't get the structure until much later. So this is me trying to like codify that structure that's in my head uh, and share that with people. Um, hopefully it'll be something where you could flip between closure from the ground up and a different book to get you know the blend of examples and, and more structured stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I and, like. And I'm going to switch immediately. Basically, like next next chapter is going to be all about sort of examples and taking all this formal stuff and building up and reinforcing it with, with different um, perspectives and the same the same concepts. Okay, cool. That's awesome. I think that's that's going to be great. I'm looking forward to reading that one too. Um, wow. Yeah. Uh, so I'll say right now, I think. Uh, uh, if you're up for it, I would love to have you back on the show at some point because the rate at which you do cool things is uh, very high. <laughs> and I know that you're going to be doing stuff in the coming years or, or months or whatever that uh, we're going to want to talk about. So uh, I do want to um, make sure I respect your time and, uh, and, and start to wind it down. But before we, um, 
Before we wrap up, uh, I want to also make sure that I give you a chance to touch on anything else that you would like people to know or that we should talk about. Uh, what else am I working on right now? Some stuff in Riemann. Um We've been using that more and more at at, uh, at Factual, and so I've been doing more work on visualizing um, distributed systems. I'm trying to have better rule systems. Uh, yeah, actually, could you could you just? I mean, I I've encountered Riemann. I haven't yet um, put it into a uh, a working project. Um, mm -hmm. Well, there's like a there's like a ton of noise on your side. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, oh. Let me see. Is that any better? That's better. Yeah. Cool. Thanks. Sorry. No, it's all right. Um, yeah. So I've been I've been interested in checking out uh, Riemann um, in more than the cursory way that I have. I, I wonder if you could give us the précis on on what it is and what it does and why people might want to use it. Riemann is a monitoring system which is built for when you're fed up with every other monitoring system. <laughs> <laughs> so it makes it makes no sense, right? Like it's sort of this Promethean effort. I've I've stolen S expressions from from the gods of you know McCarthy, and I bring them to you, operations people. Go forth and be fruitful. Uh, <laughs> you know, it really it really is trying to bridge the world of operations and engineering because I've I've done both, and I think ops people often are not uh, as exposed to software engineering concepts, and engineers tend to ignore the fact that their stuff is only. You know, you only know what your system does if it runs in production. Otherwise, you're just guessing, mm -hmm. right? Every time I measure something, I find out something new about the system. Like, oh, oh yeah. this thread pool is not working the way it was supposed to. Or, oh, this system is way slower than it should have been. Uh, so Riemann is a closure-driven monitoring system, which tries to rethink from the ground up what it means to understand a production uh, piece of software and is built for engineers and operations people to have sort of a common meeting ground where you have the flexibility to define completely arbitrary transformations of, of, of monitoring data. Um, but in this way, which is, it looks like a monitoring system, and so it's a little more amenable to specifically uh, operations work. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, you're so right about what happens when you measure. I gave a uh, presentation at uh, the second closure cons where I talked about optimization, and I showed a graph and I'm sure you've made a million graphs like this where it's like as you drive more load into the system, you know, throughput goes up for a while and then it kind of levels off. Except there was this point where throughput went up and then it went down and then it went up again. And that <laughs> uh -huh. little dip was like, what the hell is that? Like, why would it go down and then go up again? And, you know, I've never, ever drawn a real graph of measurements in a system where there hasn't been something on there where it was like, that makes no sense right now when I'm looking at it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. I definitely have to uh, take uh, take Riemann out and, and take it for a real spin because, um, you know, I spend a substantial part of my time, as anyone that makes production systems does, in making sure we can kind of look at it so when the inevitable production problems happen, you can figure out what's going on. So it's always good to know more tools. Right now, you know, I make uh, use primarily of, of CloudWatch, but, you know, mm -hmm. it's a nice system, but it's, it's somewhat limited, and it would be nice to have... Uh, stronger or more tools in the box. Yeah, it, it tends to complement other systems well. Like Riemann is built to integrate and connect different things, so you can pull sources in, or rather have them push to Riemann, and uh, and then spit them back out to other other infrastructure pieces, like Graphite or Labrado, PagerDuty, that sort of thing. Like the clearinghouse. Cool. Um, where does the name come from? 
Uh, Bernhard Riemann, uh, the uh, the famous mathematician. Uh, sorry, Georg Bernhard Riemann. Okay. Um, he's responsible for uh, the the Riemann zeta function, uh, which appears all over the place, and also for the the more commonly known uh, Riemann sums, which is where you do discrete in integrals of a continuous function. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is exactly what most people are doing when they are monitoring a system by by you know sort of. Uh, taking regular snapshots or pictures of it and then trying to add up its behavior over time. Ah, uh, that makes perfect sense now. Okay, cool. That's a good name. You're good at naming things. Um, <laughs> right. Although I have to say, if I have to pick a favorite, it's probably Jepson, which until I was uh, doing a little research before the show, um, I did not realize the origin of that name, but now I, uh, now I realize it and it's amazing. So... My favorite actually has got to be, uh, I wrote a library called Mean Girls, uh, which is based on this film where there's a, a three-way telephone scene, or four-way telephone scene, people like just lying to each other like Matt. Okay. I think it's a great model for distributed data structures, and that's what the Mean Girls library provides. <laughs> Fantastic. I can hardly wait to see uh, what you come up with next. Um, but uh, but obviously, like I said, we will. If you're, if you're up for it, we would love to have you back on the show when you do come up with the next thing or to talk about... Um, Jepson and, and maybe uh, maybe a good point would be at some point after you get a chance to do the um, the datomic uh, analysis to talk about anything interesting that you find there. Um, but I think uh, maybe we should call it a day. That's already been sixty five thousand interesting things to talk about, so it's more than sufficient for a show. And so thank you a boatload for coming on the show. It's been super great to have you. Uh, I knew you'd be an interesting guest, and I and I wasn't wrong there. So thanks a ton for taking the time to come and talk to us today. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Oh, well, super enjoyed it. It was our pleasure. Um, and, of course, before we go, we had you pick a song on the way in. Uh, we would also love for you to pick a song for us to play on the way out. Yeah, uh, this is going to be Imbrium by Ed Harrison. It's actually from a, a video game called Neo Tokyo. Okay. Uh, I'm not familiar with that one. What's the What's the game like? Uh, it, was a, it was a mod made for Unreal Tournament 2004, like a decade ago. Uh, and this guy threw together a bunch of tracks and logic for it. It was like a like a sort of open source community. Well, not open source, but like a you know, just um, bunch of people making this game on their free time. Okay, so it's music to shoot your friends by. Is that the basic idea? <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, weird electronica. Okay, awesome. That's great. I love it. Um, well, fantastic. I thank you again for coming on the show. It was super great to have you. Really looking forward to um, continuing to follow your. You're very interesting and, um, if I dare say so, important work. Um, so thanks for that as well. Um, I guess we'll close it down there by saying to everyone else, thanks for listening. You have been listening to The Cognicast. The Cognicast is a production of Cognitech, Inc., whom you can find on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at Cognitech. Our guest today was Kyle Kingsbury on Twitter at AFYR, A-P-H-Y-R. The Cognicast is produced with help from Alex Miller, Alex War, Damian Mack, David Chalimsky, Jamie Kite, Justin Getlin, Kelly Ross, Lake Denman, Luke Vanderhart, Lynn Grogan, Mark Phillips, Russ Olson, Ryan Neufeld, Sam Umbach, and Stuart Sierra. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening.